Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. To another BritFlix.com podcast. Today's guest is listed as Richard Bates Jr., but he's told me to call him Ricky. So welcome, Ricky. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. Now we're talking about Killer Instinct, aka Tone Deaf, are we not? Yes. Now, as you might suspect, I have I'm not personally responsible for that title change. Is that- I figured on the because I, I was looking it up on IMDb. It's not, it's not as Killer Instinct. In fact, what's hilarious is that IMDb goes tone deaf with a hyphen, aka tone deaf without a hyphen, which I thought was quite funny. Yeah, I mean it's it's. Uh, I mean I wouldn't normally be precious about that uh, as long as they, you know, didn't fuck with the cut. But uh, oh, am I allowed to use bad language or should I? Chill out. You're okay. Feel comfortable. Okay. Cool. Um, uh, the first thing that I wrote before I wrote a single page of the script mm-hmm. was the title Tone Deaf. Okay. So it's sort of, you know, everything was sort of rooted around that title. Uh, so so it's it, it particularly kind of interesting uh, to have a the title changed to uh, one of my favorite Super Nintendo games growing up. Well, look, I, I knew it as Tone Deaf when it played at Grimfest. Um, last year was that, was it, I guess? Yeah, I think so. So, Ricky, how and when can people see Killer Instinct, a.k.a. Tone Deaf, in the UK? Well, Stuart, 
Tone Deaf was released in the UK yesterday, the 18th on VOD. Now, I do not know uh, about the Blu-ray release or if there'll be one uh, like there has been over here. Um, I've got no details of that yet, so that I'm sure. Um, so but yeah, for for the love of God, watch 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 the movie so I can make another. So to give people a, a um, the, the the final push to see it, do you want to give people a brief synopsis to what Tone Deaf, aka Killer Instinct, is all about? Well, it's sort of it's just this kind of big, loud, crazy, absurdist satire about the uh, the culture clash in the United States, sort of post uh, post election, um, and. Uh, and yeah, hopefully everyone everyone finds something that, that they get a kick out of um, from watching it. You know, the, it's essentially a, a movie that I hope we can all find common ground um, in accepting that we are all full of shit. Yes, that's one of the one of the best things about this. That anyone going into it thinking this is like the snarky young hitting it to the olders, like. He says, this is like baby boomers versus millennials, and they're all shit. Right. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, if I'm trying to make a, if I'm trying to make a point to a baby boomer, I'm not going to, you know, make some sort of millennial fantasy. Uh, you know, there had to be sort of an equal, uh, an even playing field, you know. Um, otherwise, it's just preaching to the choir, and there's nothing safer than that. Exactly. Exactly. So, so when you when you say you wrote the first thing you wrote was the title tone deaf at the top of the page, and you mentioned there a sort of the film is a a sort of comment on U.S. culture post election. I presume you mean the rise of Mr. Trump, um, and what that's revealed. <laughs> I mean, it's as as someone that gets to see it on the news and via various tin tin foil tin foil hat wearers, um, it certainly pulled back a carpet on a few bugs running around in the light. It's quite insane. Sure as hell is. So in that sense, then, so if if if, um, if the title and the post-election sort of feeling was the kind of was how was the, how did that become the kernel of an idea for you? Well, I started to, um, I you know, I I have I have a lot of fun playing around with structures. You know, I I made this movie beforehand called called a trash fire where you know the first half is this very dark romantic comedy and then they literally drive into a horror movie and the performances get heightened and the reality gets heightened and everything and um and so i guess uh i'm very inspired by music you know um whereas people are sort of used to like a sustained tone uh or or think that's you know that's what they expect mm. um uh in a film it, you know no one complains that there's a rain stick in the background of an indie rock song you know uh you have like music and uh and and writing that really don't have to adhere to any sort of uh structural rules like that it, because there are forms that have been around way 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 longer so um you know we have this sort of idea of what movies are supposed to be um now mind you I, I i try to i try to approach movies a little bit more like music for instance this 
the entire approach to tone deaf was, oh my God, uh, turning on the news, I'm living in, I feel like over the course of 24 hours, I'm in an absurdist comedy, I'm in a horror movie, I'm in a tragedy, like it, it's insane. And, and I, you know, uh, sticking to one tone, one note, it's just not applicable to life. It's so idiosyncratic and so insane. So I tried to make a movie like as if I was creating a song by sampling. Oh, right. Um, so the idea was to, I don't know if you've heard those Girl Talk albums or whatever. Um, yeah, 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 but, yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, so, so really the idea was to make this movie through the use of, of, of sampling different genres and hopefully in equal doses over the course of the 90 minutes while still, you know, hopefully providing, you know, a certain degree of midnight movie escapism and making it, it, it fun. So what would be what would ideally then what would be the two extremes of music that you would use to as a as an illustration of this movie? Well, for this for this genre wise, it would be um, absurdist satire and pop horror. <laughs> um, you know, so that's that's sort of what we jumped back and forth between, and it was so much fun because we we tweaked performances according to what genre we were in that scene. Uh, it's very, very sort of exciting stuff. You know, I'm pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. We got to do this quite frankly. So, so um, bring that back a sec. So say again, you, you did what you would for the different tones. What? Well, we would, we would, we would tweak the sort of style of the, of the performance. Okay. You know? Now, now, the entire movie, I guess, look, a satire by net definition is an exaggeration. Right? Yeah. Um, now, you know, me personally, um, I have an aversion to sort of subtlety. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not interested and I'm not fascinated by it. If I if I leave my house, uh, you know, if I if the few times I do leave my house, I don't want to go into a, a party filled with quiet people. I want to hang out with the, the, the biggest nutcases I can find. You know what I mean? So I sort of come from the Ken Russell school of filmmaking. I, I do believe more is more, um, you know, which, which is in stark contrast to, uh, I guess what perhaps, you know, a film school teacher would, would tell you. It's interesting, isn't it? Because more, more is more. Everybody, there's, there's this instinct in the, in the, in the moment like Ken Russell certainly got it during his career, that uh, turn it down, stop it, you're over the top. And then when he's sadly now obviously gone, the affection right. for Ken Russell's movies and what he did for film and the influence he's had is talked about in loud voices now. There's no shame in Ken Russell at all. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you've got, you know, you've got Nicholas Rogue too doing these things. You know, you know I'm not, I'm not sort of, uh, I'm not sort of uh, inventing the the wheel here. Mm. I, I hope I'm I'm uh, adding a few spokes, perhaps. But who knows? You know, I, I don't know. Well, I, I, I mean, I, that's, that's a quick, in terms of writing it, because that was something that, that struck me. Because I've, I've I've not seen Suburban Gothic or Trash Fire, but I loved Excision. Um, and if I could have joined the dots and been been less lazy on my front, so my bad, I'd have seen them all, and and I'll make up for oh, that. Oh no, no, it's all good. I'll make up for this now. Now I know. But but one of the things that struck me about Excision and what I've now seen in Tone Deaf is is how 
I don't know how you, you don't fall over your ideas. And what I mean by that is, is that thinking across the two films I've seen and what I could see in the trailers for the other two is, is um, you're constantly subverting and heightening expectations, almost like you kind of like you, you go, I'll do hypernormalized while simultaneously I'm going to ground them in the real world. And I'm, and I'm fascinated by how you manage to sort of walk that line. Well, I think, I think, right, in order to get anything financed, you know, what is, you know, you have to sort of work within hmm. one of six story structures, right? Yeah. So, so uh, assuming you do that, right, and, and if you look at the core of Tone Deaf, which if I had just made this movie straight, it's, it's pretty by the books structurally, okay? But hmm. then... It started out like that, and then we start messing with these these uh, the tones and things, and and because it's sort of hard to throw twists and turns at audiences that they they haven't seen or uh, aren't going to expect. I find that when you when you jump from genre to genre, there's this feeling of anything is possible there's value in in i guess sustaining sustaining a tone and telling a story that you know from a to b to c but i do think that that it's we can still be showmen and still be entertainers and start subverting these expectations more but i understand uh, why we don't because it's very very hard to get a movie financed it's a miracle that any of my movies exist, quite frankly. I, I, but I'm talking, but, but even even with that complication aside, I just think in terms of when, because when you go big, you go big, <laughs> and it's like, but you don't. You, I don't have a. I don't have. I don't struggle to come back down to understand where we're going with the narrative at the same time. There's like your your kind of punchlines or your wow, your um, like for example, like for example, um. When Robert Patrick first just talks to us, right? Like that's out of the blue. Sure, sure. So, so do we do we stick to sort of the the rule of thirds and have him do it three times? Yes, but is it an insane thing to do? Yes, <laughs> but, but but that's what's so exciting. I mean, I I'm not going to spend a year on something and not try to break as many rules as possible. You know. Uh, otherwise, I feel like a just like a fucking robot, you know. Have you know? I'm not, I, you know. It, the the idea, and it all comes from character, is that from watching all these folks tweet, all these respectable-looking older men that probably, were, you know, were really put together talking to them, and you would never expect them to be sort of out of line, out of place. Really seem to have a good head on the shoulders. You know, but but once, you know, on Twitter, they'll say the craziest fucking things. And it was like, no one can be stopped right now. There there is no subtlety. No one. You can't stop anyone from sharing their opinion now. And uh, and it was like, so if I'm making a, a cultural artifact, right, something that maybe is interesting to watch in 10 years and will say something about the times, then my villain is not going to just sit there behind the camera and be filmed. He's going to address the audience of presumably millennials and attack them personally. But equally, um, Amanda Cruz's character, Olive. Well, she does it at the very end, right? But until that moment, she 
doesn't know she's in a horror movie. No, for sure. But I was just thinking more about the um, the, the film over. Sorry, that's my fault in terms of the way I segue to that. But thinking of what 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 Harvey's role is in the film, with also the talking to camera to make some of the finer points. Amanda's role as Olive is obviously representing Team B, the Millennials, and there's an early early part of it where where clearly most people that get fired were meant to feel sorry for them, but in that moment. I'm more I'm more aghast at her sense of entitlement than I am. Absolutely, absolutely, and that and that was the most important thing, right? To to be just as hard on uh, on the millennial as on the uh, the boomer uh, throughout the movie. Again, mm. you know, because if I'm trying to find a common ground, it is that it is that you know they are both hypocrites, whether they choose to believe it or not. They are both hypocrites. Now, is one is one possibly more dangerous than the other? Certainly. Uh, but but they both, you know, they both. And the strange thing is they have all these similarities, but they don't really even touch upon them until the very end. You know, they both experience the same traumas, blah, blah, blah. But but Olive is at this point in her life where she's open to everything because she's she's at this. She's growing. She's learning. She's open to everything. And Harvey he is completely done growing. He is he is closed off. And mm. the pit too, there's so much comedy in pitting two characters like that against each other. For me. For sure. And and it's it's the the um the idea that that, that Olive who you know obviously take takes chances in her life by the way she behaves and she's very impulsive. And jokes about the threat but actually doesn't believe there is a threat because she's so important within her own imagining of how the world works that there's no exactly. she's, she's fearless by by a naive stupidity not because she's brave precisely precisely but then at the end it's this strange relationship because without harvey her bubble would never have been burst yeah and she wouldn't have become such an active participant in her own life uh, the way she is. And it is, you know, it is sort of a response certainly to this, the, the election over here, where all of a sudden, whoa, this happened. Now everyone's political. But before then, you know, a lot of people could have given a shit. It's everyone, everyone's looking for an excuse. You know, and that's sort of the funny thing about Harvey, right? Like he hates this younger generation for being self-obsessed and narcissistic. But 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 what drives him crazy and drives him to murder is his own uh, preoccupation and obsession with his place in, in this new world. I love I love the uh, the boomer um, sort of stoic. Um, <laughs> it's like a stoicism. They've 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 made them, you know, healthy contributors to the to society and then they look back and go what was the point of being stoic and then they get angry at the people not being stoic it's, right it's an amazing right. turn of events and it, and what's what's equally fascinating I wa weirdly coincidentally i watched a um i watched a youtube analysis some guy doing an analysis of uh films from 1999 and it was looking at the uh the culture of the office cubicle so you've got like the Matrix, you've got Fight Club, you've got Office Space, right? 
and this idea that what had happened was the nineties was such a such a comfortable period that our biggest woe, and obviously it was largely sort of the white male, as it were, was um my life is so dull, I'd rather hurt myself so I feel something. Right. Than I would live a right. comfortable life. <laughs> Yeah, it's well. It's interesting, and now and now we live in the world of like the open space floor plan, uh, which you, you know, and also a really fascinating thing now is I think more than ever we we our surroundings are we make a concerted effort to to dress our surroundings and ourselves as representations of ourselves. You know what I mean? Like it mm. uh, uh, of our personality. It's important um aesthetics more more than ever I, you know one good thing about having some money for this was we were able to to really uh make everyone's surrounding an extension of their personality also at, at, attached to the story though with harvey is obviously he carries a burden of tragedy with him as well doesn't he he's a he's a he's a grown-up grieving absolutely uh, you know absolutely and, he, and and he's hurting and and the most important thing, the thing, the big thing for me was to make sure there was no, there was no, you'll find if you're selling a, a film out here, it's very important. Oh, well, why is he murdering them? Was, is it revenge? Cause someone did this. I need a, I need a very specific reason. And then the, you know, and, and, and that takes all the fear out of it because the reality is some people, some people just snap. And, and, you know, I mean, I read countless interviews about serial killers with, with no motivation. And there are many that have, have uh, you know, there's a direct correlation between this and that. But the scariest ones are the ones, is the, is the Ted Bundy, the guy that just, just, it's, it's in him. It, this is, he does it. You know what I mean? There's, you know, there's nothing more terrifying than someone doing something horrific without a horrific reason for us to wrap our, our heads around, you know? So, so really it's just this buildup and then he snaps and he sort of reverts back to childhood and he's living out this John Wayne fantasy. Yeah. I, I, I see. I mean, I, I, I remember I read, um, Dennis, Ra somebody's written a book about Dennis Rader, the, uh, the BTK killer who, who went eight years without killing anybody. And when they caught him, they said to him, "You know, what, why did you why did you stop killing for eight years?" And without missing a beat, he sort of he went, "Well, you know, it's really hard to uh, to be a serial killer when you've got a wife and kid." Like so, it's just the, just the, the kind of the time management was the problem. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean that, that's and that's you know it's sort of the the serial killer at the bar, the the hipster cowboy fella. If you will, um, you know, he said most of these guys ain't got no rhyme or reason. He's talking; he's basically talking about Harvey. Um, but I, Robert Patrick, improvised my favorite line in that bar when I, I so I surprised him because Robert Patrick's pretty much the most masculine man I've ever met. Um, so I had them serve him a Shirley Temple to see what he would do, and uh, and he just just like that, he said, "Don't hold back on the cherries." <laughs> do you know it's funny that because um i went the first time i went to to Cannes film festival which is the home of not the home of film but it's the home of rosé the wine 
That, mm -hmm. that region of France is where Rosé sort of comes from. And as a kind of, you know, daft bloke, the first time I holding a glass of Rosé, it was almost like, no, I, I, you know, I've got no choice, I've got no choice. And thankfully now <laughs> I, can, I can have a glass of Rosé and not feel like my masculinity is somehow in jeopardy. But I remember sure. it is really true. I mean, it's mad to think that something as unsymbolic as a bloody drink would make me would make me feel that way. But uh, yeah. well, I mean, it's 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 how we were raised. It's the culture that we were raised in. You know what I mean? And and there are some of us who, you know, challenge that and are and dissect it the way you are. And then there are some that just uh accept it as fact and and roll with it forever you know what i mean um it, it's it's very strange i mean look we're we're all sort of raised in our parents image if you will um and you know our parents aren't gods <laughs> no no i was uh, I, I was in my um i was in my dad's local pub over christmas i think or just after Christmas, and um, and I asked them, you know, have they got what, what what red or white wine have they got? And the answer I got was, we don't have any wine. And I was like, okay, so I said, like, I'll have a gin and tonic then. <laughs> and then my dad's friend went, ooh, he's having a gin and tonic, and I'm like, it's just a drink. <laughs> gin and is gin and tonic a, a frou frou drink? If you're in a if you're in a pub. I, mean, I guess maybe in a pub. Yeah, I mean, I drink a lot of gin and tonics. I didn't even know that. If you go to a bar, I mean, you know, and you're out with your own gin. I'm talking, I'm with a load of I'm with guys who are buying pints of bitter. Right, right, right. And I wasn't, I didn't even think about it because, you know, I've gone and got me London ways, haven't I? But I mean, imagine that pressure to, to, to be that person and how that can, and hold so many things inside and how. It, you know, it's a surprise to me there aren't more Harveys, that it doesn't just bottle up and explode. You're not allowed to share your emotions. You're not allowed, There are certain things you have to do, uh, otherwise you're, you know, less than a man. And, you know, there's this, it's, it is difficult to live your life the way you want to. What did Amanda do to bring Olive alive that really surprise you well amanda and i had so much fun so um so amanda and i went through it the, the really cool thing about amanda is she, she's so funny and she much like annalyn or um angela or you know she doesn't want to play the pretty safe girl you know what i mean like she is not afraid to be disliked when I, you know, I said, look, you're going to have to fully embody uh, almost this stereotype. I, you know, I don't want, I know on every movie, the first thing, the note on every scene is how do we make this character more like, a, they need to be liked. We need to believe, uh, who am I rooting for? You know what I mean? It's a funny, it's a funny way of discussing films, isn't it? The idea that at the outset, people will ask what's likable. Well, it's all training, right? Sort of the same thing as a, as a parent handing down their own values to you that may not be your own. It's sort of the way we critique art. It's sort of passed down, and then you either just roll with the criteria or you, you know, have your own opinions about what something should be, uh, you know, and, and how it should be and what is good and, and what's not good. or You know what I mean? It's, it's, 
I just, I fear all of these things put limitations on people. No, for sure. But what, what, how do you, how do you think we lose sight of interesting in favor of likable? It's, there's nothing safer, right? I mean, movies cost, cost money. Uh, people, I guess it's tough because I, you know, a lot of the films that I love the most are right from the sixties and seventies, very challenging films. Um, I also wonder if people want to be challenged as much by movies or, or, you know, maybe it, maybe it's just a, a, a brief little escape to a lot of people, you know, um, again, it's all, it's all training. It's all, you know, children of the eighties. I mean, there's nothing safer than sort of the eighties in Hollywood. Right. So it's, you know, you're trained to follow this formula to like this formula and, and it does work and it is nice and it's comforting and it's safe. And that's what a movie is to you. It's an escape and it's a safe, nice escape. And then you go back to your life, you know, but there, there's no right or wrong way to make a movie. There's nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? But, but to say everything, that's the problem is, yeah, is saying that's how movies are supposed to be. And especially for women, especially, you know, after talking to Amanda and we talked to Anna Land when we made Excision, it's, it's, there is this pressure for their careers to be sweet and likable and beautiful. Um, so uh, a thing I try to do with all my movies, and, and we had a lot of fun doing with this, was, was just throwing that out the window. Don't think for one second about winning the audience over. I could give a shit. Okay, there is, there is no audience. Fuck them. You know what I mean? And, and you have to think like that when you're making the movie, okay? When you're shooting it. Because if, if you don't, then you're going to start changing things. Ooh, I think this will make, you know, we planned this out and this is what the character would do here, but ooh, it might make someone mad. And, and you start deviating from the plan over and over and over again. And that's, that's how a movie gets completely, you know, turned into something very middling and lukewarm, I think. You know, it's, I'd, rather be, I'd rather be someone's, a movie someone loves and another person hates than a movie that two people think is just like whatever i've seen it a hundred times one of one of my favorite sort of um, notices you give to the audience and i think it's in a way it sums up that 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 kind of safe 80s environment that we could kind of continue is um is the piano motif um as uh as and as uh, you know writ large is that idea of everybody's told everybody's kind of growing up with a, I mean and it's not a right or wrong thing because I think you know inclusion is good you know feeling feeling belonging is good but there is there is also a sense of impregnating people with delusion as well if you never say a, a, a critical word to them and I thought the piano motif was a really clever way of of sort of tackling that issue. Well, that we had a lot of fun with that. That's my favorite scene in the movie. The first one, um, or the or the way you get or, or towards the end. I actually like the 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 one at the end, but the first one sets it all up, right? The first one, I was like, because as a viewer, I'm going because before you know, before we get to see our friend's reaction, I'm like, is this for fucking real? Yeah, this filmmaker's out of this filmmaker. No, not the filmmaker. Idiot. I was just like. Because she's that, you know, the friend, the friends have set us up. The friends are the ones that set us up. Well, no, yeah, and we treat it, we, we take it very seriously. You know what I mean? As if she's playing great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, that's. I mean, we we had so much fun with all these things, you know, and and both of the stereotypes 
that we're lampooning and that that they're embodying are are both are both sort of so ludicrous that I I assumed a lot of people would be like okay now I see the way that I've been treating like looking at this person and that's the way they look at me and it's all bullshit and like we need to we need to find like some common human ground but it's been, a very fascinating thing has been one side will be like well, they, they got that side right, but fuck them. That's not how we are. And the other side is like, this isn't us. But, but like, I do believe in a, a certain amount of things about that. You know what I mean? Every, we all bring so much of ourselves to, to the movies we watch now. You know? Uh, everything is personal. Uh, everyone, you know, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating time to be an artist and to take any sort of chances because, uh, you know, it's, it's very, I mean, you, you can, you can say the wrong thing and, 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 you know, lose your career over an aside that you didn't even, you know, put much thought into. You're just, it's just mm. off the cuff. You know, it, it shocks me that, that anyone would be on Twitter, quite frankly, and risk anything, uh, you know, and I don't know anyone on Twitter actually keeping it real who's an artist. I mean, fuck no, you can't. You don't know these people. They can't, you can't know them. They won't let you because inevitably, as human beings, they're going, there's going to be something about them you don't like and you're going to latch onto it. And, and why risk it? It's a very strange time and a fear I almost have is, uh, I mean, because people are being born into this now and they know immediately you can go on social media and, and, and ruin mm -hmm. someone's life or have your life ruined uh, or try to, you know what I mean, just or bully someone. Uh, I feel like people are being so very safe with their lives now. No one wants any, you know, I just worry... Or we, is there going to be a lot of art from artists that have never made a mistake? If you think about, I mean, I'm, I'm in my 40s, and if I think about the idea of the kind of, the, the and I think Ricky Gervais jokes about this, he sort of says, he said, you know, once I realised that Jesus wasn't watching me when my mum and dad were out, I could get on with my life. But in a way, social media has taken on that kind of really weird, censorous role. Well, well... That's what I'm saying, right? And, and as artists, we're supposed to pull from our lives. We're supposed to have crazy adventures and, and make mistakes and try to get better and grow and, and, and keep making mistakes and fuck up. And it's like, it's, it's creating this. I'm just so curious. Is the next generation of artists, are they going to be allowed to have a platform if they've ever made a mistake? Because to me, I want, I want my art from people who fucked up and, and risen to the occasion. In fact, you know, but, but, but it's almost... People are really afraid. This thing that started as as being this beautiful thing where we can all express ourselves, there there are so many limitations now. I think people are actually afraid to be themselves now. And I certainly don't think you're getting the truth from anyone on social media. And so and so, what's the fascination with the bullshit? You know, half the interviews you give are taught. You know, like like I'm talking to you right now like a person, but I'll tell you when I do a line of interviews, it's all talking points. I, I rehearse it. I say it. I don't want to make waves. I don't give a shit. 
Uh, if you like the movie, you like it. If you don't, you don't. I want you to see it. I, of course, I, I work so hard and I love you know, the movie and I want you to see it. But I'm not going to risk saying something stupid to be entertaining. Not anymore. I used to think like that. I used to want to be, uh, you know, a showman and be be as entertaining an interview as as maybe I as I want to be a filmmaker. But but I look back on old interviews where I, I just speak <laughs> from the heart, and I'm like, man, you can't do that anymore. No, it's like in a way, it's like. Do you remember? Do you remember the old? Um, did you, oh, did you ever see the uh, the Dennis Leary gag about Poodle Man? I don't think so. So, so that he tells the story of the tragic death of someone that dies because a poodle falls out of a high rise on his head and he dies. And the bigger tragedy is he'll just be forever remembered as Poodle Man. And in a sense, you do one, you do one vile tweet in the in the you know the fog of the fog of alcohol or the you know the joys of of being fifteen, and you could be forty eight and still paying the price for that that one moment, which is because it's on record. Precisely, precisely, and 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 it's it's really. I just I wonder what the next. I wonder what kind of art we're going to see in in 20 years. I mean maybe people won't take maybe people won't take the internet seriously anymore, right? Or or as seriously. Um and and maybe pe- there'll be freedom in that. I think that there's there's so what's happened. I mean I, I bizarrely I did, back in 2008 I did a um into apropos this conversation. I did a, a masters in mass communication and I actually looked at I did a paper on whether or not Britain could regulate the internet. Now, this is like just before social media really kicks in. You had like MySpace and Friends Reunited and really real sort of benign stuff like that. There was no sense of, you were just connecting. You weren't really sharing yourself. And um, and it was, and it, and it felt like we were on, we were already talking about terms like post-truth even then. But I feel like even in 2020, we've hit what you would what you could only describe as pre-truth. We're just traveling around. We we got information. You know the idea that information would set us free. Never as a never as a bloody slogan been so untrue. And and I remember the first time I ever heard somebody describe in recent years hearing somebody describe the difference between truth and facts. And all my life, I thought they were the same thing. This is a very interesting time to be living in. I mean, especially uh, you know to have lived in. A portion of our lives in pre-internet world, and then a portion in post-internet world. Uh, you know, I we are we are experiencing something unlike. I just I I I'm just curious where it's going to go. I, I rather than speculate even further, I, I guess I just. No, I mean, I'll I'll speculate for 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 uh, for myself. I've got I've got a feeling that it will be a combination of what you described before, is that taking what we get from the internet less seriously because we'll begin to re-identify what we trust. So what we trust becomes more valuable than what we can get. Now I don't know what that'll do for art and creativity, but I think it'll start with. Hopefully, that'll start to make a better public sphere. And a better public discourse because right now, it's just either you're wrong and I'm right, and if you and I won't listen to you until you tell me I'm right and you agree with me. Whereas I grew up in a time where you could have differences of opinion about things, and 
you could agree to disagree, and that was how you move forward. Right, and 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, right. There's, it's everything. Everyone is an extremist now, almost. It feels like. Where does the idea for the white room, blue people, him in red, come from? How did? What made you realize that would be useful? Because that's one of, in terms of your tonal shifts and and your playing with our expectations. That's where you really sort of take us and go, ha ha. So with um, so with Harvey's dementia, I I, you know, I tried to come up with sort of a visual, an interesting visual way of sort of presenting uh, his unraveling, right? That was more abstract. And it started when I, I was in a, I was back home in uh, Virginia and I was, I live in Los Angeles now, but I, I was, I, I was in DC and there was this Norman Rockwell exhibit I went to with my mom and my wife. And, uh, and there was this painting, the connoisseur that always stuck with me. And it's of this old man staring sort of quizzically at a Jackson Pollock painting. <laughs> And I was thinking to myself, you know, it's very interesting because you've got this, this amazing artist, right, Norman Rockwell, who, who actually, you know, the more research I did into it, it seems like uh, he was actually sort of trying to skewer the new wave of artists and he didn't understand Jackson Pollock. And it was sort of a, a, actually a slight. Um, and there are stories of um, Norman Rockwell actually taking the time to create fake Jackson Pollocks and submit them to, to win contests and things. Very, there's all these very interesting stories about that. So, wow. so anyways, I, I thought it was so fascinating that, that, that no matter how successful or uh, talented you get, there's still <laughs> this bitterness almost. Um, so in, in my mind, it was, okay, what would be, what would also, what would be beautiful and what would be funny? It would be, oh my God, Harvey, imagine his nightmare if he had a child that went to art school and, and, and of all the arts they chose, it was uh, performance art. I mean, how do you, <laughs> how would he, how would he reconcile with that? Uh, how would he go to one of these shows? So in his nightmares, his his nightmares are actually living out as performance art pieces. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, and we actually, you know, uh, the space, we we rented an actual art gallery. And Well, look, let's remind people then, how and when can they see um, Tone Deaf, a.k.a. Killer Instinct? I think uh, it... Uh, it came out on VOD in the UK yesterday, the 18th. Um, check it out. I mean, check it out. Watch it with some friends. Have some conversations. I hope you have a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's a wild ride. It is indeed. Well, look, thank you for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Hey, thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate it.
What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.